On March 16, 1965, 82-year-old Alice Hertz stepped out onto a street in Detroit, Michigan and set herself on fire. Hertz, who died of her burns 11 days later, had lived a life that was every bit as remarkable as her death. Born in Hamburg, Germany in 1882 and of Jewish descent, she found herself detained in a camp by the Nazi regime during World War II. Hertz, along with her daughter Helga, fled to the United States as the war waged in Europe. And once in the United States, Hertz quickly aligned herself with peace initiatives as the world transitioned from World War to Cold War. She contributed to the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, or SANE, and helped to found the Detroit branch of Women's Strike for Peace, an oft-forgotten but hugely significant organisation that played a key role in anti-Vietnam war protests in the 1960s. In March of 1965, Lyndon Johnson finally escalated a war that he had tried to ignore since assuming the presidency 16 months earlier. The US military began Operation Rolling Thunder, an intense bombing campaign of North Vietnam, with the goal of convincing the North to cease its attempts at reunifying North and South Vietnam under communist rule. When Hertz immolated herself, imitating the Buddhist protests taking place in South Vietnam, she did so, quote, not out of despair, but out of hope for mankind. Ultimately, Hertz's sacrifice would be ignored and largely forgotten. The Vietnam War would escalate and rage on for another decade, claiming millions of lives and ensuring that Lyndon Johnson's America would be torn apart by divisions that still live with the country over 50 years later. This is episode three, The War. Do you feel that it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of his race or color. Well, the nigger's all right in his place, but they've always been behind us and just tell you the truth. I want them always stay behind me because I never have loved a nigger. And we shall overcome. You might, man. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. A teenager held up a sign, bring us together, and that will be the great objective of this administration at the outset, to bring the American people together. Hello and welcome to American History 2. I am Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Malcolm Craig. Thank you very much, Mark. Good to be back. I notice you're adopting a staccato approach to introductions these days. You will hear it with even more feverishness uh, when the A to Z episode comes out that we've just recorded. But uh, yeah, so we're here today to leave behind the sunny optimism of episode two of of this series, The Dream, uh, and transitioning, uh, as you said in the introduction to the war, um, somewhat less full of sunny optimism. Um, But before we chat about that, um, I just wanted to quickly ask the listeners something that we haven't asked, I think, since maybe we first started the podcast, um, which is if you enjoy the podcast, we'd love it if you'd be able to quickly give it a, a, a review um, uh, and hopefully a good one. And also just sort of let us know how you're 
finding the, the new format, the series format, and also the A to Z episodes we've been putting out, is obviously it's quite a significant shift in how we were doing the podcast previously. We are really enjoying it, but, you know, we hope you are too. And in terms of leaving a review, it just means that more people get to find the podcast. So that would be great if you take 30 seconds of your time to do that. And do let us know if there are particular things you would like us to look at in a future series. We can't guarantee we'd look at them, but we're interested to find out what our listeners want to hear about. If you suggest that we look into the history of the tariff, I am afraid we will have to say nay. <laughs> no, no, no. Six episodes on Smoot Holly is going to be. Anyway, enough of tariff chat. Yes, let's get on to the war, which of course by the war we mean the Vietnam War. And now we've done a previous episode and devoted entirely to the Vietnam War. I think in that we mostly focused on, you know, sort of saying where, where that war came from, the lineage of it, looking at the veterans and also looking at the Kent State shootings. And, and those things will come up, I'm sure, at, at some point in this series, but that won't be our focus as much this time. We're going to discuss other things. So, uh, I mean, I guess we left off in 1965. Um, and by that point, by the point we left off around in August 1965, Lyndon Johnson is, as well as passing the start of the Great Society, uh, the Civil Rights Acts, the, the War on Poverty, Medicare, all that stuff. He is also, in March of 1965, um, ramped up um, military efforts in Vietnam by ha- implementing Operation Rolling Thunder, which was what led Alice Hertz to, to immolate herself in protest of a massive bombing campaign of, of North Vietnam. And he has uh, just decided to send in 100,000 of American troops to Vietnam. So I think what we should discuss first is the escalation. Yes. You know, but maybe before we go into the precise details and look at quite in the psychology and the motivations behind escalating the Vietnam War, without retreading the whole of the reasons why America is in Vietnam, we should probably talk about why Vietnam. There's a lot of countries out there in the world that, you know, the, this battle in the Cold War between, you know, East and West trying to pull them into their, 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 their each other's corner. But why Vietnam? Why Vietnam? I mean, Vietnam is essentially, it's a, a war for independence. I mean, it becomes what we call a Vietnam War. One of the names that in, in Vietnam is the resistance war against America. But it's just part of a longer series of anti-colonial conflicts. Because throughout its history, Vietnam and China has been colonised by multiple groups. So in World War II, the Viet Minh under Ho Chi Minh are fight the Japanese very, very bravely fight the Japanese with a certain expectation that in the post-war environment, you know, with all these statements of, you know, things like the Atlantic Charter and freedom and democracy and all these things from figures like Franklin D. Roosevelt, that this will be a road to independence from French imperialism. That doesn't happen after the war. Britain and America let the French back in and the United States is intrinsically involved in fighting in Indochina and Vietnam from the get-go. Lots it, of money being funneled in weapons to the French. Eventually, you know. basically funds the French war up to the denouement uh, uh, in 1954 with the NBN few is involved in the negotiations that take place thereafter mm-hmm. uh, in the 1950s and ends up getting kind of like their man in place in the form of Ngo Dinh Diem uh, as the leader of South Vietnam. Uh, I mean, this is all because of the the emerging Cold War. Mm-hmm. Vietnam is a bulwark. It's seen as the, the nor- North Vietnamese and their southern supporters are seen as 
avatars and the vanguard of com- world communism led by the Soviet Union and potentially China as well. Yeah, and I think at this point it's, it's worth laying out the domino theory, which is re- really underpins a lot of the reason why, you know, like basically why you're saying that America is so interested in Vietnam. The, yeah. This idea that, you know, you know, China, the loss of China is just such a huge scar on the American consciousness. This gigantic country is now a communist country. Um, potentially to align with, with, with the Soviet Union, although, you know, as you talk a lot about, it's very complicated, those relations that are yep. going on in different types of communism. But to the American, the untrained American eye, this is a threat. So if Vietnam is to go communist, then that's another domino that falls on because Vietnam's bordered to it. Then you could have other Southeast Asian countries such as Laos, Cambodia, down to Indonesia, which is just further south of that. And even the more, you know, perhaps outlandish views think that the, the Soviet lake could wash all the way down to Australia and New Zealand. And it's in Japan. Because Japan is the well, rebuilt Japan is the linchpin of American politi- uh, Pacific defense mm-hmm. in the Cold War. There are bases there. It's a, becoming an economic powerhouse. It's hugely important. So it could even you know the dominoes could fall. To, well, Indonesia is hugely important as well. Yeah. And I mean the thing is at the same time as this escalation is happening in Vietnam, you have the massacre of the largest. Uh, communist party outside of the communist world in Indonesia yeah. the massacre of the PKI where half a million uh, communists are killed by the Indonesian regime so so you know Indonesia is establishing anti-communist credentials and all like and then the US has a complex relationship with what's going on there yeah uh, so uh, so yeah so the, so the domino theory it's you know at the time it seems ludicrous now it seems ludicrous to us but at the time they're looking back at the experiences of how countries fell in World War Two, what has happened in Eastern Europe in the post World War Two. It is explicable. It's understandable why they might think. Yeah, this. I think if you place yourself in nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties America, I understand the domino theory. Like, I mean, there are still people that argue, you know, after v- the Vietnam the war, while America will not, not to spoiler alert, America will not win the Vietnam War. There are some that argue that had it not intervened and put up this fight and thus delayed Vietnam's fall to communism and shown it's, that it was willing to stand up for the free world and shown its allies that, that then Vietnam would have fallen to communism quickly and then you would have got the domino theory. Um, I mean, this, that is obviously an, an opinion that can neither be disproved or proved. You can show what side you come down on, but it is, it's an opinion and it's out there. But I mean, I think I think the clear thing to establish is from the 1950s onwards, or late 1940s, America is heavily involved in Vietnam. You know, in 19 DMBM Fu, you mentioned Eisenhower wants to send in American troops at a certain point to to aid the French at DMBM Fu, and, he, and but the only condition on doing it is he has to get the British involved, and the British say no because well, um, they're they're already fighting in Malaya. Yeah, so. So you, I mean, like basically, the ninth, while the Vietnam War, when we think about it, begins really either you can take the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1964, or you can take the escalation in 1965. America has a long history. It's called America's longest war for a reason. Yes, and, and I mean the thing is, you know, this is you know Southeast Asia uh, is, and East Asia is the front line of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. At this point, I mean, Vietnam should not be viewed in isolation. It's part of a much wider series of conflicts that are kind of involving ideas of communism, but also of independence, of decolonization. So you have conflicts, you know, you have Malaya, 
that which becomes Malaysia, then you have a conflict between Malaysia and Indonesia, the Confrontasi in the 1960s. And there's all these conflicts happening in this this space. Mm. And this is becoming, it, it, it's to do with imperialism, it's to do with decolonization, it's to do with internal politics, but it's also to do with the Cold War starts being influenced by it and influencing it. So it's an, it's an yeah. incredibly complex area at the time. I mean, to broaden out even more, just to like sort of give the, I mean, you were, you were talking to me recently, you, I think you were reading a book or something that was talking about the arc of Cold War killing actually takes place. Paul, Paul Thomas Chamberlain's yeah. excellent book, uh, The Cold War's Killing Fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there is this, taking uh, a word, a term from the historian of uh, Eastern Europe, Timothy Snyder, the Cold War's bloodlands. Almost all the killing of the Cold War takes place in this arc that runs through from Southeast Asia, through South Asia, up through the Arabian Peninsula into the Lebanon uh, and areas like that. It's a very convincing thesis he provides that almost all the de- the Cold War killing takes place in this in this area. And yet when we think of the Cold War, the first things that spring to mind are the United States and the Soviet yeah. Union. Well, that he, is not where the death took place. He <laughs> points out in this arc... 98% of all American combat deaths in the Cold War take place in this arc. And that's pretty much Vietnam and Korea. Yeah. That's where the, you know, the and the, the level of civilian death mm-hmm. that takes place in these areas is vast. Yeah. It's absolutely huge. And so, and, uh, the, the thing as well is that Americans that are carrying out these, they really, uh, in a lot of the places, really lack any understanding of the areas that they are dealing in. I mean, one of the problems that will, you know, leads to a lot of misunderstanding of Vietnam is the fact that in the State Department, a lot of the people who did understand Vietnam, who had perhaps been there during World War II, were rooted out during the McCarthyist purges of people being accused of being communists and everything. And so you have this misunderstanding of Vietnamese history. Um, and what's going on on the ground? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the intellectual basis of foreign policy is starting to wither, yeah. because of the domestic politics yeah. of anti-communism. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's crucially, uh, crucially important to understand. There are all these contexts mm-hmm. uh, to what's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get let's get specific again. So, let's get back to 1965. So, Lyndon Johnson comes into the presidency. November 1963, we've talked about his sort of domestic agenda and everything. And essentially, for the first, throughout 1964, which is obviously an election year, Johnson tries to pretend that this problem that's been left over from presidents before him of Vietnam, um, at the point he assumes the presidency of the 16,000 advisors, air quotes advisors in South Vietnam to help train, not at all assist, train um, troops down there he just doesn't want to deal with it because it's going to get in the way of his domestic agenda um, so he kind of puts it on the back burner tries to ignore it for as long as possible then you have the Gulf of Tonkin yep. in the summer of 1964 when may or may not have been a fa- there may or may not have had North Vietnamese uh, a ship may have fired on an American ship um, and even though the American ship was in an area it shouldn't have been in and was acting as a direct provocation and one of, one of the important <laughs> things it was supporting South Vietnamese commando attacks yeah. on the north yeah. I mean this is the thing it was involved in already an act of war yeah. you know, which is almost at the time from the American perspective written out mm-hmm. of things oh this was on patrol in the Gulf of Tonkin it wasn't on patrol yeah. you know it was it was supporting warlike activity yeah. and and the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident is so desperately confused about what actually took place the second I mean there's the question of the second attack 
on the destroyers. The di- but it becomes the cause of spelling. It gives Johnson the opportunity to go to Congress and say there's been a warlike act mm-hmm. on American vessels on the high seas, not saying what they're doing, and we get the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Yeah, which is a resolution which basically gives the president carte blanche to do what he wants in Southeast Asia, despite the fact that he says to Kong, he even t- says to the main senators, look, this is just really for this to strike back. I need this now to look strong to the public. Um, he wants to order air strikes yeah, no, against um, to show willing, to show credit, because Vietnam is all about, from the American perspective, it's all about credibility. Yeah. It's about credibility in the fate, in the Cold War. With their allies. Yeah, and, with and their allies the as much Soviet as Union. anything. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, so in that, the Gulf of Tonk- Tonkin Resolution being passed under those auspices means that Johnson can effectively fight the Vietnam War without ever having to declare war and without ever having to go in front of the people and persuade them to go yeah. to war. It's that a is. police action. Yeah. And and obviously, so Johnson also says during the nineteen sixty four election, um, that he's not going to send off American boys to fight a fight a war that Asian boys, boys should, should yeah, be fighting, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. which is a long tradition of American presidents promising such things, such as a more war one and more war two, indeed, and then going back against it. So so let's drill down this. So, but why escalate? Why nineteen sixty five? Why does Lyndon Johnson choose to escalate? I mean, what what's your read on the situation? It's cred- a, credibility with who? With allies. Strengthen the face of the communists, mm-hmm. fighting the being seen to fight the Cold War. It's, it all comes down to credibility and national security. You know, a lot of people try to parse Lyndon Johnson's statements about, like, surely he didn't really mean that the national security of the United States was threatened by events happening thousands of miles away in Southeast Asia. And I'm persuaded by those historians, for example, Andrew Preston, who. You're saying, no, actually, why don't we take Johnson at his word? He did genuinely believe that fighting in Vietnam within the context of the Cold War helped to preserve American national security. Cold War consensus, thank you. So I, I, I agree with that, that it's about credibility. It's showing strength, determination. We will not back down. Mm-hmm. And also preserve a genuine belief that American national security was at stake. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I, I definitely agree. I think there are a couple other things at play. Um, most obvious is the fact that Johnson perceived the, uh, Truman's failure in the Korea and Roosevelt's turn to World War II as basically undermining their domestic agenda. Um, and he's also seen, especially starting with Truman and the loss of China, how Democrats suffered by being called soft on communism. Mm-hmm. And therefore that allowed that allowed the uh, conservatives to stop any sort of further domestic agenda. So he is determined to keep Vietnam as something that he is in control of so that he can pass the Great Society. You've got that going on all the time. Um, and the other thing as well, which I think is quite interesting with Johnson, and obviously of men of his generation and women of his generation, is the the role and he it comes up in speeches the role of appeasement yes. in American memory or in world memory at this point is the fact that Neville Chamberlain coming back from the Munich conference in 1935 is it 38 30, sorry 38 coming back and saying you know like peace is peace in our time peace in our time and having made made peace with Hitler and you know made um, sort of an unofficial pact that that wasn't going to happen which obviously Hitler then ignored and ran roughshod over Eastern Europe just marched straight into Czechoslovakia and Poland and whatnot um, before World War II started that for a certain generation not being tough in the face of aggression meant you were an appeaser and it meant you would end up in the slippery slope 
And that's an accusation that's levelled to successive presidents. Truman got it in the neck. Mm. Appeasement. Appeasement is a dirty word. It means you're like, yeah, it's exactly like you're Chamberlain at Munich, all mm. that kind of thing. Poor old Neville Chamberlain. Uh, and yeah, so you can't, it's like, but this ties into the credibility yeah. thing. You know, if you're an appeaser, you lack credibility. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And the f- final thing I would mention, which I think is important for thinking about how the war is fought, is that while Johnson thinks he has to do this stuff, he's not a true believer in really fighting this war. It's not a war he wants to fight. So he essentially sort of splits the difference and fights a war. And a lot of his critics, like especially right-wingers who think you could have won this war, conservatives or hawks, let's say, and I think with some justification, I don't know whether they would have won it or not, but might have gone in bigger and bolder, is that Johnson just fights the war enough. Yeah. Like, he's not fully committed to it, I don't think. And it's important to emphasise also that, you know, you think of the, the Vietnam War as occupying Vietnam, and yes, the North was bombed heavily and, mm-hmm. and indiscriminately, but the ground conflict takes place in the South. Yeah, never invade the North. It's the North. American troops are not in in the North. It's all taking place in the South, in the Southern countryside, because it's not a conflict between North and South. It's a conflict between the American-backed Vietnamese minority and the northern supporting Vietnamese majority only get bigger and bigger because of the actions of the American-backed government and American troops and American bomb. All these kind of things contribute to an increasing popularity of yeah. northern ideas and support for the idea of a reunified Yeah, because there's Vietnam. a lot of people in the South Vietnam who do not like the North. A lot of them have fled from the yeah, North, yeah. You know, especially Catholics that have fled from there um, as, as religious persecution under the communists yeah, in the North absolutely. took place and everything. So there's also a civil war going on in America's yeah. in the middle of it. Yeah. So, yeah. Basically, yeah, they, sne- they step into a basket of snakes. But, but it's and, like and somehow add more snakes. It's, to it. it's one of the ways in which it is like Korea, because Korea was essentially a, is a civil war. Yeah. Uh, and you have a situation, and like Vietnam and Korea are very different conflicts, but there's the similarities in the sense that they result from both long-term issues to do with colonization and ideas of independence, but also to do with the flawed decision-making in mm-hmm. the po- in World War Two and the post-World War Two environment yep. about the division of countries, about where lines on maps are drawn, yep. where borders are, who gets control all these kind of things. So they're similar in those regards. And, and there's another thing you, you talk about Korea. The other thing that Johnson learns from Korea, obviously, you know, he's in the Senate at the point, is is the fact that the Chinese come in on the North Korean side. Um, and that's why America doesn't ostensibly invade the North at any point. Because the North, North Vietnam is bordered to China. Um, and um, there is a belief that that the Chinese will send in troops and then you could have a world war at your hands. And, again, but and, but this know. is also the era of the Sino-Soviet split where from the late 50s into the early 60s you have this massive fissure mm-hmm. in the communist world. Perhaps but, not appreciated in the capitalist world. Though, yeah, between uh, yeah. You know, Mao and Khrushchev. Yeah. You have this complete dislocation between the Soviet Union and, and the People's Republic of China. So you start having these two poles mm-hmm. of the of the communist world who are challenging each other as much as they are challenging the West in air quotes. Yeah. Although they do both supply they do a both lot to the North Vietnamese in terms of guns and well, yeah, and you have like Soviet fighter pilots, for yeah. example, flying MiGs yeah. uh, for the North Vietnamese Air Force. Yeah. Cool. Well, that, I, th- I think that sort of co- has covered 
quite fully why Vietnam and how it was escalated. So, I mean, the other thing we talked about, there would be this being a war of decolonization, a civil war, and also a Cold War proxy conflict. It has also led historians to be at war with one another. I mean, Vietnam War historiography is just really interesting, I find, in that you've just got... Because Vietnam is a, a subject that very few people who have written about it appear to be able to disconnect their strong feelings about it. That you really have these two clear schools of thought. You've got other people who manage to bridge the gap and they're the ones I actually enjoy reading the most. Yeah. Um, particularly someone like Gary Hess, um, who is kind of good at sp- showing both sides and showing being as objective as possible. But you get the orthodox school that says this is just a terrible war. It was immoral. It was horrible. America let itself down. It could never have won it because it didn't understand um, the Vietnam War. It didn't understand Vietnam as a country and its history. Um, uh, so it was it was a unjustified and unwinnable war, essentially. And then you have the revisionist school that comes in and says, well, actually, domino theory was justified. The America had to fight this war to show credibility to its allies. Johnson, had he fought the war properly, could have won it much earlier. Had Kennedy been smarter, they could have won it earlier. Um, and it was a it was a justified, it was a worthy, it was noble, and it was winnable. But the government lost it, and that is just one of the like historians are completely divergent on everything, whether it's quagmire versus you know, intentional. You know, you know, was the United States gradually sucked into the quagmire of Vietnam without really intending to do mm. it, or was it a deliberate policy of gradually ramping up uh, the conflict? The historiography that, I, that interests me the most is the is the more recent work that's uh, that is emerged by Vietnamese and Vietnamese mm-hmm. American uh, historians, historians like Lien Hang Nguyen, uh, whose book Hanoi's War is a gives you the northern perspective on the resistance war against America on the Vietnam War and shows the the complexity and the you know the infighting and all the challenges that were faced within the north as well. Yeah, I mean I think, you know, we were talking about this in the pub last night. You know, and Americans a lot of people looking back at the Vietnam War now when they think of the Vietnam War and they think of Vietnam, they think of Ho Chi Minh. Yes. Disabuse our listeners of the, of the importance of Ho Chi Minh well, I mean, during the, the hot period of the yeah, I mean, during War. Yeah, during the period of escalation that we're talking about, I mean, Ho Chi Minh has been kind of... Deposed is probably too strong a word. He's still there, and he's still a crucial... Symbolic head. He's still a symbolic mm-hmm. figure. But the war is being run by by mm-hmm. other figures, like Lei Duan, mm-hmm. who is, I mean, really one of the the crucial figures. Uh, Lei Duan, Vo Noi Gap. They're the ones running the war. It's not Ho Chi Minh. But yet, from the perspective of the United States, it's Uncle Ho. It's Ho Chi Minh. He's the guy that's, that's running the mm-hmm. war. He's the big bad enemy. Mm-hmm. Who's the, but it's, but it's not, it's running the, these other, Lei Duan particularly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's kind of move this back then. You know, this is talking about Lyndon Johnson's America. So let's think of a couple of elements of this war that relate to the home front and also sort of the American makeup of what's going on here. And one of the things I wanted to talk about was the American military. Mm. And I think when I've taught the Vietnam War, generally what I find is the things, the two topics that are actually most interest students or they most write their essays about and things like that are the how race and gender play out 
uh, on mm. in American society in the 1960s vis-a-vis the, the Vietnam War. So for African-Americans, the Vietnam War is incredibly, is an incredibly sort of complex and interesting thing going on. At the same time, you have the civil rights movement reaching its peak and then splintering. And we're, we're saying, we're kind of talking up to 1967 at this point. So yeah, we'll bear yeah. that in mind. We're, we're saying, we're kind of up in the first few years of the war. And one of the things you see is African-Americans sign up disproportionately for this war. Um, and they suffer disproportionate number of deaths in the early years of this war. And they also receive some of the most positive media portrayal they've ever had mm. as, um, as fighters in the American army. Um, I mean, there's one Life magazine which basically does this whole special on Africa, the African American soldier. And there's a quote from Wes Merlin that actually talks, rather than talk about, you know, the stereotypes of the strength and power and athleticism of the African American soldiers, talk about their skill and their technical capacity. So they're actually seen very positively in the role they're contributing. And obviously, at this time, the, the military is arguably the most desegregated part of American life. It's the part where an African-American can make the most money easily and that has a chance to rise up to a commander level. You know, Colin Powell comes out of the Vietnam War, yeah. um, although there is, of course, still discrimination there. But it's an interesting time for it. But, I mean, there's also the fact that within American combat units, there's a huge amount of racism mm. and racist violence between white soldiers and African-Americans. So this is not saying that all white soldiers in Vietnam were, were racist, but you do end up getting, there's a significant minority who will refuse to fight alongside African-American soldiers. Uh, they commit acts of violence against them. Uh, they wear things like Ku Klux Klan symbols, white power symbols and logos and everything. And some of this you know, provokes or is kind of like a reaction to African-American soldiers having civil rights symbols and, you know, later on black power yeah. uh, symbols and all that kind of thing. So there's a lot of, and Vietnam overall is an incredibly racialized war. The Vietnamese are seen by American and many, you know, combat troops in really racialized terms. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the language that is used harks back to language that first appeared in the, the Philippine War in the early part of the 20th century, in the aftermath of the, the Spanish-American War. The same language was applied to Filipinos, was applied to Koreans, and now becomes applied to the Vietnamese. So race is a... We don't really have time to go into the, the full impact of race in the Vietnam War, but it's hugely important both in terms of the relationship between different groups representing America and Vietnam and the overall attitude towards Vietnam as well. Yeah, and the fact that the North Vietnamese realise this and they like try and spread propaganda to get African-American troops yeah. to desert by by talking about, you know, the, the racism of, of, of the white American man and everything. Yes. And almost none do. You know, it's not successful propaganda. So it is interesting what, what's going on. And one, but one of the things we'll talk about in our very final episode when we look at the legacy is the influence of Vietnam on the resurgent white power movement in the mm. 1970s onwards. Yeah. That's an important legacy, but we'll come back yeah. to that in the last episode. Yeah, and I think as we get further on past 1967, you also that's when racial tensions on the war front actually creep up a lot yeah, more yeah. post Martin Luther King's death and everything, yes, and we'll yeah. come to that later. But yeah, so in the early days, it's almost painted as sort of optimistic yeah. 
um, um, of, of how African Americans are getting on, albeit the fact they're dying at a disproportionate number. And it might be worth mentioning here the, the, the delightful Project 100,000, which always outrages students. <laughs> like, I've not, so, I mean, Project 100,000 being, I think it was McNamara's sort of pet project, which was essentially to enlist 100,000 people who were drawn from poor backgrounds mostly who fail um, the the basic test to get into the army often because they don't have the education or, or whatnot to get in. And the idea of it was that you're almost giving these people an opportunity if you want to look at it in a positive way. If you're a cynic, you say, oh, well, you're finding poor, uneducated, often African, African-American people to go and die at the front lines because often they would be given the most dangerous jobs and, and, and whatnot. So... That project one hundred thousand is worthy of, of further study if that's type of, if I, if you're interested in race and the, and the American military at this time. And there's also but there's also the question as well as you know issues of you know race. There's also the question of gender, both in terms of like who is in Vietnam and also the, the way in which this is all represented. Because you know women in American military and semi-military service play a significant role. Yeah, and I mean, a, a lot has been done recently to bring this, n- none more so than uh, than Heather Sturr's fantastic book, which I think is called Beyond Combat. Um, and uh, she she draws attention to the the nurses, the the women of the Women's Army Corps, and the always the the, the favorite that always intrigues me, the students is the uh, donut dollies, um, who essentially are there to to entertain the troops, um, and. And and uh, like sort of bring them home comforts, and also to be a representation of what they're fighting for, because they are college women, um, draw a couple of years older than the average age of the soldier, like sort of hired on the idea that they are the girl next door, and they go to Vietnam, and therefore they play games with them and stuff like that, and they they're sort of seen as the representation of what the American man is over there fighting for. Why you we know, fight the Cold War nuclear family, and there's the you know the women as part of it, and yet as star expertly you know sort of points out is the fact that these women in their very existence they're college women they have gone halfway around the world are actually rebelling against this exact image they're supposed to be portraying um and and it's how gender is played out there is fascinating and and you have all these women that are over there in vietnam one of the kind of disturbing parts about this is you know you've got nurses the women's army i mean most most of them are nurses that are out there the, mm. the women's army corps and the donut dollies are a relatively small number sort of hundreds rather than thousands and there's a lot of brothel areas in vietnam um i, I think like senator fulbright at some point says that like saigon has basically become an american brothel and there's like these these areas called sin city and so the american gis would go and visit them in their off time um, to drink and do whatever with with women, a lot of prostitutes that were there and everything. And they got very, very angry if any of the American women came along. They were not supposed to see the American men treating women like that yeah. in that way. And and that's another effect of the of the Vietnam War and the vast influx of American soldiers is this this the way in which it creates this you know this idea of the the, the Vietnamese women for many American soldiers are available mm-hmm. the all Vietnamese women are available to them and you know the, the the hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese women who are in many ways forced into sex work 
by the conditions of the war and you know and poverty and being driven out of their mm. villages into urban areas and all that is coming and the explosion of like sexually transmitted diseases and sexual violence and all that that's a that's a huge part of this yeah is you know is one of the you know, in, in amongst many appalling things in the Vietnam War is the the way in which women are treated, Vietnamese women are treated, yeah. uh, is is particularly bad. That's not saying that every American soldier yeah. is a rapist or committed sexual violence, but there was a huge yeah, there was, amount of it. And, uh, I mean, there was a lot of stories of increased suicide on behalf of South Vietnamese men who yeah. would come back from the home, come back from fighting in the war to find that their wife... And to feed her family had gone into prostitution yeah, and yeah. the shame that had supposedly brought on. And just in, and, and also just in terms of Saigon is basically fueled by American money. So there's just this hyperinflation. It's entirely built on that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's an interesting contrast if you think of Vietnamese women as well. Obviously in, in the 1960s, American women were not allowed to fight as part of the, part of the world. They obviously are now. Um, but the North Vietnamese very much used female uh, fighters, yes, um, yeah. some some of the most lauded veterans would go, wear wear female fighters, um. So you have that real contrast, and and also on the flip side is is the expectations. This again, sort of drawing off Heather Sturr's work, is the the expectations on men during the uh, American men during the Vietnam War is this idea of the on one hand they were supposed to be the sort of John Wayne character that they you know they grown up watching John Wayne movies. Where the good guys and the bad guys, and it's always the good guys um, that triumph, and it's the masculine John Wayne, who at this point had become a rather right wing figure, <laughs> um, a very right wing right figure, figure. Yeah. right wing figure, who's you know uber masculine, or and um, you get shot, or, you dig the bullet out with your Bowie knife, yeah, exactly, you weld yourself shut with a hot iron and carry on, yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. and obviously John Wayne then tries to do that for Vietnam, where he. He brings out the movie The Green Berets, Berets yes. um, which actually Vietnam troops watch and laugh hysterically yeah, at yeah, because yeah. it's just nothing like actual war. Um, but yet, on the other hand, they're supposed to be winning the hearts and minds of the South Vietnamese. You know, the purpose of this, the America being in Vietnam is to get support for the American-backed government. Mm. Therefore, you need them to be popular. So there was the idea of winning hearts and minds. So you had to be a gentle warrior at the same time as being uber-masculine John Wayne figure so um, that contradiction in the gender expectations is just also there in American policy where on one hand you have search and destroy and the madness and the horribleness that comes with that on the local population versus the what was it? The pacification, pacification. Uh, where they try to when Johnson wants to build them their own great society, strategic Hamlet program, yeah. and all of these kind of things. So it's just a constant contradiction, and it's therefore it's unsurprising it didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the, you know, the final element of this discussion we've talked about, kind of, you know, race, gender, sexuality, masculinity, all these kind of things. Class. Yeah. Was Vietnam, from the American side, a working class war? Yes. Not quite to the same extent, I'd say. I think it's, I think things are even more working class now. Um... But certainly if you were a college student, you had a much better chance of getting a deferment, um, especially in the early years of the war. Um, and that, that option was not open to the working class. Um, and in the early years of wars, it's disproportionately African-American, who, of course, are also tend to be left out of this definition of working class when we talk yeah, about them. Yeah. But African-Americans are mostly working class. 
So yeah, I mean, uh, I get a historian called Christian Appy has written a yes. book called Working Class War, which is which is good on the Vietnam War, and that has ramifications for the tensions that build in terms of the anti-war movement, and and at least is perceived. I, th- I think what's most important about it is it's perceived as a working class war, where the working class are going off and doing the dying, while these middle class pesky spoiled students um, in American universities are burning the flag and burning the draft cards and everything and it becomes very much that's how that's how it's perceived but i mean it's not completely working class you know lyndon johnson has family that fight in the vietnam war it's not the same way that in modern times maybe leaders are happy to declare war but tell their family they're not going like type thing um so yeah so it's a, it's a bit so that conveniently leads us into the early stages of the anti-war movement mm-hmm. uh because when we think about anti-Vietnam War protests, we think of the mass protests of the later period and the the real kind of like the the mass turn against against Vietnam. But let's think about the early stages of the the protests in the, in the nineteen sixties. How does how does it come about? And how and why does it come about? Because you've taught a lot about about this in in US history. Um, yeah, I mean, so the early stages is is mostly on university campuses. It's teachings. Um, which is essentially what it sounds like. You know, a whole load of students would come along and their professors would sit and teach them of why America should not be involved in Vietnam. And I think it's sort of a continuation of the the peace element in America, the, the anti-nuclear element. That The sort of people who would be attracted to that would be attracted to an anti-Vietnam War protest as early as 1964-65. You have sing-alongs, um... Bob Dylan's songs of this era very much become like sort of anti-war anthems. Um, but yeah, it's, it's on college campuses which are much more important than they used to be. Because in the 1930s, there was an anti-Second World War protest mm. and stuff. But college campuses were the preserve of the elite then. They weren't widespread. But Americans returned from World War II. Eight million Americans, I think it is, or something crazy like that, benefit from the GI Bill. You also just get the post-World War II prosperity has meant that a lot more people can afford to send their children to college and to universities they are and baby boomers the fact that there's this huge generation growing up are now you know there to go so universities in the early days are sort of the the hub of the anti-war movement then also you've got the the dramatic actions of Alice Hertz and and also the one who's remembered more than Hertz Maybe as a as a because of his gender and also where he does it is Norman Morrison who immolates himself outside of the uh, Secretary of Defence McNamara's office window. And it's um, but it's important to emphasise that these were inspired by actions in in South Vietnam, particularly because of the minority Catholic control of. South Vietnamese governance and the persecution of Buddhists. You have Buddhist monks. And I apologize to any and all Vietnamese speakers, native and otherwise, for my pronunciation of Vietnamese names. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, I mean, the really notable one is, is Tish Quang Duc, uh, who the famous photograph, uh, of him immolating himself. Actually, on, it takes your breath away, the yeah, photograph. June, like, 11, June just... 11th, 1963. Yeah. Uh, taken by, uh, I think the photographer Malcolm Brown. Took this famous one of him sitting in the in the street, and there's the other monks around, and the cars around, and he sets fire to himself. And it's one of those things that, as a historian, you look back on these as historical events, but as a human, you're also like, how how do you do that? 
uh, how the discipline, how, the, the, I mean, the, the or just how, so, and and this was not. I mean, there was a lot of immolations, particularly by you know by Buddhist monks who set setting themselves on fire as a form of protest in in South Vietnam. So you know, Hertz Morrison inspired by the actions of the Buddhists in in South Vietnam, and so this is this kind of like you know transnational circuitry. Of protest and you know, yeah. the ideas of what constitutes protest. Yeah. But I mean, I think the one thing to say in this era, up to the point we're going to get to today, <clears throat> that being anti-war is a minority yeah. and it's a looked down upon minority by most Americans. Um, I mean, I think in the next one of the next podcasts, we'll discuss television and its role in the Vietnam War to, mm. to a greater extent. But the one thing I'll say about it just now is it does not paint the anti-war movement in a favourable light up until maybe 1969 when it gets a wee bit more positive with the moratorium. Um, American, the anti-war movement is is scorned upon by like anchors who will report from it or they'll be reporting in Vietnam and they'll ask the soldiers, so how do you feel? You know, the really sort of a leading question is, how do you feel as an American soldier out here fighting on behalf of your country to find out that there are people at home protesting you at home? And then the soldier will go, oh, well, it doesn't feel good. Like, you know, very much um, on on that side of things. And you've also got, I mean, you've got stirrings of the anti-war movement and happening in song and uh, and television and, uh, sorry, in movies. But, you know, the, on, in the 1965, you get the song The Eve of Destruction, which is sort of a, an anti-war song that I've, I think I discussed on a previous episode. And in response to that, you get Sergeant Barry Sadler releasing the song version of the movie I've already discussed, The Ballad, Ballad of, of the, the Green, Green Berets, which goes to number one. It's an awful song. Like, I can say that objectively. I'm not, I, like, I, I can't say I'm a great... I have amazing taste in music, but I think everyone can agree it's, it's a, a dirge. Ter- it's a terrible it's song. A it's just to army drums and whatnot. Yeah, um, fighting soldiers. That that type Please of thing. Please don't try to sing again. I should apologise to all people that have ever tried to sing. Yeah, you know, like, don't. Um, uh, but that's the thing. He doesn't sing either. Um, so yeah, um, you've got He's more like talking along with the the beat kind of. Yeah, yeah. Sergeant Barry Sadler, early rapper. Yeah. <laughs> I do apologise, yeah, right. I actually reduced my to tears. Yeah, I know, but yeah, I suppose as we leave off though, the, the anti-war music again is a certain itself. You've got, you know, Country Joe McDonald's I Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die rag, which will become a real anthem, you know, the whole one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Yeah. Um, Everyone sings along at Woodstock. Yeah, exactly. All that stuff, yeah, yeah. Um, and Alice's Restaurant, the famous sort of 18 minute long anti-Vietnam draft song yeah. by uh, Arlo Guthrie. And everything. But, I mean, it's the it's the American folk movement that is one of the in in these early days of protest are the leading movers yeah. and shakers in the anti-war protest in terms of music. Yeah, you know, yeah. Rock, rock and roll is still not quite. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's becoming like, a bigger thing. It's not quite got as politicized. Yeah, this like point. Pete Seeger and and figures yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So while while we've got that going on, um, it's maybe worth pausing at this point and then to think. You know how we. Well, actually, I think I think at this point we should say, by nineteen sixty seven, the war is not going well. That that's a point that needs to be made. No, <laughs> okay. um, the United States is not by any any measurable standard winning. No, 
um, the Johnson keeps having to request more and more troops because the generals keep coming back to him saying, oh, we need 100,000 more, we need 200,000 more. So by 1967, he's continuing to ask for more troop requests and yet at the same time telling the American people, well, we're about to win the war. We are about to win the war. Um, just need that little bit, that little further push. And by this point, Johnson is experiencing what um, is called a credibility, credibility gap, gap. Um, whereby people are just beginning to doubt the truth, uh, beginning to doubt what their government tells them. And this is a different phenomenon in America who'd, you know, at least for the previous 30, 40 years, would believe what their government told them. This is the start, I'd say, of the ebbing of that belief um, by the mass of the, the mass population. And Johnson's popularity is declining, um, especially as for other things we'll discuss. The Great Society is not quite becoming a reality. Mm-hmm. And people, <clears throat> and what happens in 1967 is that Johnson has to ask for more money to fight the Vietnam War. He has to ask a surtax, as it's called, 10% on all taxes. And it's the first time that in a poll, it shows the majority of the American people think going to the Vietnam War was a mistake. It's interesting, as soon as you hit people in their pockets, they oh no, maybe that Cold yeah. War isn't as important as I thought it was. And and it quickly, fit, as, as soon as people forget the, the surtax, it flips back for a while and people think, no, no, I was right to go into Vietnam. It's not for a while that the American population yeah. turns fully against it. But yeah, by 1967, the war isn't going well. Um, whatsoever. America is not, if anything, it's managing to recruit more people for the Viet Cong and it finds itself at a crossroads. And the, But there's still, I mean, as well as the kind of credibility gap and decline, Johnson finds the, the American fight in Vietnam, he still has foreign allies there. There's still support. The, it's one of the fascinating things about the Vietnam War is after America... Who sends the most troops to Vietnam? Australia. Nope. South Korea. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> Roughly about 300,000 yeah. 300, or so troops during the, the course of the war. They're the biggest foreign contingent after the United States. So, And they continue up to night. They're there up until 1973. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's an interesting kind of thing there that, I mean, part of this is, in some ways, for South Korea, oh, America helped us out during the Korean War. Yeah. There's the, you know, the alliances that, that South Korea is involved in, the atmosphere of the Cold War, uh, all of these kind of things. But we were talking kind of like last night about uh, about w- William Fulbright, mm-hmm. one of the a huge figure in American politics, I think we can say, uh, in the, the 1950s and 60s. Uh, he was actually against the Koreans uh, being taken to Vietnam. He described it as the hiring of mercenaries. Interesting, especially with a man of the racial of the racial politics of William Fulbright. That's quite that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah, but so I mean, this is so. But he has allies. But I mean, it's becoming a more corrosive situation. There's, you know, he can't. You know, he never got the UK on board. You know, despite all his efforts to try and get you know Harold Wilson, you know, said just a platoon of bagpipers, <laughs> as he famously said. Harold Wilson was like ah. Absolutely no way. I mean, part of it is Wilson sees himself as, oh, I can come in and be the great peacemaker mm-hmm. and try and resolve this. But also, I mean, Britain is involved in its own, you know, Southeast Asian conflicts. It's involved in the confrontasi between the, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia and everything. So they're like, absolutely no. So, you know, there isn't the same alliance, you know, as there were you know, in, in previous, in Korea. 
Mm-hmm. You know, for example, where Britain was a major contributor to that. So I like that you managed to fulfil the requirement. We are recording in Huddersfield, the home of Harold Wilson, and you, of, and you managed to get outside there. Huddersfield Railway Station. There's the statue of Harold Wilson striding forth, pipe in hand, uh, <laughs> on, on his way to the Isles of Scilly. On, on his <laughs> holidays, famously, yeah, he, he did love only our British listeners will get that one. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but I think you know, people around the world and in America are starting to see the fact that, hang on a minute this isn't all it seems to be. Yeah. Yeah, America's on its way to being viewed as not the bad guy, essentially. Yes. Yeah. The, as more, by a big chunk of its own people. As it becomes more apparent what's being done in terms of the bombing, in terms of what's happening on the ground, villages getting flamethrowered, the strategic hamlet program, the way that civilians are being killed in North and South Vietnam, in this kind of indiscriminate manner. It's yeah. it's starting to corrode belief in the war and the, why are we there? I think I think to say I'll finish off this episode. Unless there's anything else you want to nope, add I'm... finish off this episode with a story I like to tell that shows just the sort of the madness of of the Vietnam War effort. I mean maybe stories like this occur in all wars. But when you lose a war, stories like this become more mad. But Either way, it sounds mad. As a later on in the war, when they start to test, when former soldiers start to testify um, about their experiences in Vietnam, uh, one, 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 a marine, I think it was, he tells the story of when they used to patrol South Vietnam, South Vietnamese, uh, a certain area in South Vietnam, looking for. You know, a hidden Viet Cong. You know, because how do you how do you tell who's a Viet Cong and who's just a civilian who happens to be tending to the farm? So they were told, if when they approach with a helicopter, the people run, it means they're Viet Cong, and therefore you should shoot. And so they approached the helicopter. The people looked up, you know, quite terrified, just tending to their field and everything. They didn't run. So they turned on a siren, and the people started running because they thought, "Oh, sh-, you know, like it's a helicopter like, yeah. gunship. We're going to get killed." And they gunned every mm. single one of them down. Happy story to leave on, yeah. But that comes into like cinematic representations of in Full Metal Jacket, the bit where they're in the helicopter mm. in Vietnam getting taken to the front line. This machine gunner is just shooting everyone that they go past, and he makes this you know appalling joke about. You know, if they run, they're a VC. If they stand still, they're a well-disciplined VC. So he shoots everyone, men, women, children, buffaloes, yeah. a lot. And but and that's based on the what actually happened. Yeah, because one of the measurements of success in Vietnam was body count. Body count. What was body count? How many of the enemy did you kill today? Are you sure that the enemy... Well, no, but, but could they have been? And the focus yes, on yeah, the focus on body count drives atrocity. Yeah, and you'd get a promotion yeah. if you if your if your unit had a great um, body count. And anyway, on that. Anyway, so note. the the awfulness of the Vietnam War. In the next episode, we will look more closely in sixty seven, sixty eight, the crisis at home. Yeah, and the downfall, and the, the eventual downfall of Lyndon Johnson. Why? Why does it all? How does Vietnam and how do many other things in domestic politics contribute to it all going so badly wrong for Lyndon Johnson? And that will be episode four of Lyndon Johnson's America. Thank you for listening to episode three. 
Thank you very much for listening to this episode about the Vietnam War and Americans Evolving. If you're interested in reading further in any of the books that we've mentioned, there is a, a reading list attached yeah. to the podcast, so do feel free to have a look at those. We can recommend all of the books that are on that reading list. Indeed. All excellent. Definitely. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Well, come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam, did you help again? Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the early gates. Well, Don't be slow, I man, this is war a go-go There's plenty good money to be made Supplying the army with the tools of the trade Just don't be afraid if they drop the bomb they Drop it on the Viet Cong And it's one, two, three What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn The next stop is Vietnam And it's Teachers, administrators, and other school staff play an important role. Education can be a shining light, and it's really the equalizer for everybody. You are making a difference in people's lives, including your students. You can have a really bad day at school and still realize that what you're doing is making a bigger difference. We are the best profession in the world next to doctors, but even a doctor had a teacher. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now.